Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. The calendar year ends December 31st and begins January 1st, but the church year ends two Sundays from now with the last Sunday of Pentecost, and a new church year begins with the first Sunday of Advent. So as we near the end of a church year, the lessons that are assigned in our lectionary are also at the end of the gospel, in this case, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And they contain some of the last parables that Jesus tells before the gospel moves to tell the story of Jesus' last days, his death and his resurrection. Now, I give that context by way of helping us to understand the parables that we hear this time of the church year. They are judgment parables. They are parables that Jesus gave to his followers about the criteria by which God judges us, individually and as societies or nations. Now, I realize that this whole notion of judgment, God judging us, God judging the church, God judging society, the very notion of a judgmental God makes us uneasy. And for those of you who were brought up only learning about the judgment of God, but who did not hear much about the loving kindness of God, well, these stories of judgment might kick up a lot of emotional baggage for you. But there's no honest way to read scripture without concluding that God's judgment is a common and a recurring theme. One thing that's important to remember, though, is that while Scripture is clear that one day we will be individually and collectively judged by God, it is even more clear, Scripture is even more clear, that it is God, God, who does the judging, not human beings. Judgment is not something human beings are to engage much in at all. Jesus repeatedly warned his followers, then and now, against judging others. And while Jesus had nothing but compassion and tenderness for sinners and tax collectors, it was judgmental people, especially religious judgmental people, who drove him up the wall. That's not to say, though, that we as individuals and as a church should not hold one another accountable. Love and accountability are not contradictions. Love and accountability aren't even opposed to each other. Good parents know that. Good parents know that loving their children, they hold their children accountable for their behavior. 
In fact, it's out of that love that they hold them accountable. Because the opposite of love, the opposite of love is, is not hate or anger or any other strong emotion, but the opposite of love is apathy, giving up, not caring at all. Accountability means that someone cares, someone notices. It's a reminder that our thoughts, our words, and our deeds matter, that they're consequential. And so we get parables from Jesus that wrestle with the question, what is responsible behavior in preparation for our being judged by God? What is responsible behavior for in preparation for our being judged by God. In other words, how are we to behave knowing that God holds us in loving accountability? Well, that's a question being wrestled with in today's gospel. In it, Jesus tells the story of a man who, before going on a long journey, summons three servants in order to entrust property to them. To the first one, he gives five talents. Now, a talent, as you may know, was a large amount of money. And while the point of the parable is what people do with what they have been given and not the exact details, it is important to know that we're not talking about trivial amounts of resources here. Biblical scholars, in fact, believe that one talent could have been equivalent to about 15 years' wages of a day laborer. So in modern terms, using a day labor rate of, say, $15 an hour or $33,000 a year, one talent, 15 years wages, could be as much as $500,000, half a million dollars. So if one talent is half a million dollars and this first servant is given five of them, he's being entrusted with something like the equivalent of two and a half million dollars. The second servant is given two talents, or about a million dollars, and the third servant is given one talent, much less than the others, but still about half a million dollars. Imagine your boss or your employer coming up to you and saying, look, I'm going away overseas for a while. Here's a backpack. In it is $500,000 in cash. I'm entrusting you with this. Someday, I'm not going to say when, but a long time from now, I'll be back. Well, you'd think pretty carefully about what you would do with that money. And that is the point. Thinking carefully about what God, the one for whom we work, the one for whom we minister, live, and are accountable to, we need to think carefully about what God has entrusted us with. So for us, when we think about the talents that God has entrusted us with, it's important to think about our financial wealth, our money. Are we being good stewards or caretakers of it? Are we putting it to good use? But it's equally important to think about the talents that God has entrusted us with in the modern-day sense of talents. And of course, our word talent comes from the Greek word, in this gospel, a word that started out meaning a huge sum of money, but over time came to mean God-given 
gifts or abilities. It's important to remember that the servants are not given the same amount of talents. This implies that each of us has not only different, but differing amounts of abilities or talents. Think of talented musicians, talented writers, people with financial savvy, talented administrators, people with a gift of pastoral care and concern and compassion. The question is not how much or what kind of talent other people have. The question is, what do we do with what we have been entrusted with? So back to the story. The first servant receives five talents. This person invests it and gains or makes more, in fact, doubles it. The second servant receives two talents and also invests and gains or makes more, also doubling it. The third servant, however, the one who received the one talent, went off and dug a hole and hid the money. Now, digging a hole and burying money was in that day and time regarded as the best security against theft. Burying it freed you from liability. Burying money was the cautious and careful and sensible and risk-adverse thing to do. A long time later, the employer returns and calls the servants to account. The employer is very pleased with the first two who had made so much more of what they had been entrusted with. Because they had not kept it to themselves, because they had risked, they could be confidently entrusted with yet more and enter into the joy of the kingdom of God. The, the third servant, however, comes up and says, here, this servant, this part of us, was afraid. This servant says, I know you're harsh, and I was afraid. So I, I went and hid your talent in the ground. I didn't lose any of it. I was afraid to lose any of it. Here, here's your talent. It's what you gave me. You can have it back now. And with this servant, the employer is very angry. He's told he didn't have to take huge risks with it. He could have invested it, just made some interest with it. It's he should have done something with it, however small. And he's sent away to the outer darkness. And, and here we get this seemingly strange part of the story when the one carefully protected talent is taken away from that person who returned it carefully and given to the person who had been given five and risked. And we're told, those who have much will receive more. Those who don't have much, even the little bit they have, will be taken away from them. At first sight, it seems that this parable has Jesus making a point that's completely out of character, something unfair, like robbing the poor to pay the rich. Well, in case it's not obvious, that is not what is going on here. 
Remember, this is a parable. It is a metaphor. It is a story told about God-given resources, God-given gifts, God-given talents. We are always so tempted to compare ourselves with other people. Who's got what? Who's better at this? But you are only asked to make full use of what you have been given. The question is not, do I have gifts and talents? The question is, what am I doing with the gifts and talents I have been given? Am I using them? Am I taking risks with them? Or am I burying them? We've been given talents to use, not to keep or hide or protect. As a sign in a Sunday school classroom says, your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with that talent is your gift to God. Remember, the person who had the one talent did not lose it, but they didn't use it either. We, we don't know what would have happened to any of these servants had they risked and failed. That scenario was not part of the story, not part of the parable. But if you consider the whole arc of the biblical story, the ways that God acts in salvation history from Genesis through Revelation, well, if they had tried and failed, they would have been met with nothing but compassion and forgiveness. We tend to think that it is people who live notoriously evil or hateful lives who are judged by God and who lose out on entering into God's glory and joy. But here in this parable, we have some of the harshest condemnations in all of the Bible for someone not because of what they have done, but for what they left undone, for what they left unused, did not risk, did not try. Again, given the whole arc of the scriptural story, it seems that we do not need to fear being judged harshly for putting our God-given talents to use in life and failing. Rather, we are failing in life when we don't put our God-given talents to use out of fear of being judged harshly. Jesus tells this parable to make this point. On the one hand, those who generously share the gifts and talents they have been given, those who generously share their money, their talent, their power, their love, their forgiveness, those who hold on to those things lightly, those who are free to free it are the ones most likely to find themselves getting back even more in return. And on the other hand, those who cling, those who cling to money, 
cling to talent, cling to power, cling to love and forgiveness. Those who jealously preserve what they have been given, who hoard it, well, they find, we find, that the tighter we clench our fists around those things, the more slips between our fingers and is lost. It's more of the great reversal, more of God's economy, flipping our expectations. It is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal, wonderful reign of God, spirit-enriched, God-abundant life. You cannot out-give God. 